You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast. From the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, the museum brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. Join us as we take a closer look at the secret world of intelligence. Hi, good afternoon. Welcome to the International Spy Museum. My name is Vince Houghton. I'm the historian and curator here at the museum. Uh, welcome to uh, Author Debriefing, our first one of 2016. In fact, I believe this is our first public program of the year. So mm-hmm. welcome, everyone, for being here. Um, if this is your first time here at the museum or at one of our public programmings, we have in the back table there all the programs that we're doing for the next couple months are some really cool programs we have. Springtime is really where we... We save up a lot of the great programming because we don't do a lot over the winter time. Uh, so there's a lot coming up, so check it out. Uh, if you've been here before, welcome back. It's good to see some familiar faces. Uh, we're very pleased to be joined today by Bruce Rydell, who is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and the director of the Brookings Intelligence Project, which is part of the Brookings Center for 21st Century Security and Intelligence. In addition, he serves as senior fellow in the Center for Middle East Policy. Bruce retired in 2006 after 30 years of service at CIA including postings overseas, where he was recipient of the Intelligence Medal of Merit and the Distinguished Intelligence Career Medal. He was a senior advisor on South Asia and the Middle East to the last four presidents of the United States and the staff of the National Security Council at the White House. He was also Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for the Near East and South Asia at the Pentagon and senior advisor at NATO in Brussels. Bruce was also a member of President Clinton's peace process team and negotiated at Camp David and the other Arab-Israeli summits and he organized Clinton's trip to India in 2000. In January of 2009, President Obama asked him to chair a review of American policy toward Afghanistan and Pakistan, the results of which the President announced in a speech in March of 2009. In 2011, Rydell served as an expert advisor of the prosecution of the underwear bomber in Detroit, if you remember that story. I didn't even come close to trying to pronounce his name. <laughs> I just went with the underwear bomber. And then in December of 2011, Prime Minister David Cameron asked him to brief the United Kingdom's National Security Council in London on Pakistan. He is the author of five books by himself and contributed to several others. The Search for Al-Qaeda, Its Leadership, Ideology, and Future in 2008. Deadly Embrace, Pakistan, America, and the Future of the Global Jihad in 2011. Avoiding Armageddon, America, India, and Pakistan to the Brink and Back in 2013. What We Won. America's Secret War in Afghanistan, 1979 to 1989 and 2014. And finally, his newest book, and one we're going to talk about today, JFK's Forgotten Crisis, Tibet, the CIA, and the Sino-Indian War. Welcome, Bruce. Thank you for taking the time to come talk to us today. Thank you for inviting me. It's a real pleasure to be back at the Spy Museum and with all of you today. So the book takes place, the, the, the big crisis of the book takes place in October of 1962. And now when I think of October 1962, and probably a lot of people in this room, we have a knee-jerk reaction to think the Cuban Missile Crisis. And I think that's probably true for a lot of people. But your book shows that we almost had a full-fledged shooting war between not just India and China, but between China, the United States, the UK, and it could have turned into a World War III. Can you talk a little bit about the inspiration for this book? What, what this story should have been known before today. Like right. what, what led you to it, and how did you finally find the information that, that led to this book? Well, let me just start briefly this way. On the morning of 16th of October, 1962, the president's national security advisor, McGeorge Bundy, went into his office in the west wing of the White House early in the morning, as he normally did, 
And there were two memos sitting there waiting for him. One was a memo from the State Department's Bureau of Intelligence and Research, which said that tensions between China and India were escalating rapidly, and that the prospect of full-scale war between them was now very real, and that a full-scale China-India war would have a significant impact on American policy. First question, obviously, would the United States supply the Indians with military equipment? Second memo on his desk was from the CIA, and it's the memo that reported that they had discovered intermediate-range ballistic missiles in Cuba and thought that the Soviets would soon be providing them with nuclear warheads. It's that combination of these two events that I think is so fascinating. And what inspired me here is an earlier book, Avoiding Armageddon, I discovered that combination by doing research on America's relationship with India and Pakistan. And it stuck in the back of my head. Here's a whole part of the Cuban Missile Crisis, one of the most important events in American history, one of the most important events in global history that no one's ever looked at seriously. How did President Kennedy handle two huge crises, one in the Caribbean and one in the Himalayas, simultaneously? Crises that involved the biggest countries in the world, America, Russia, China, and India. And the stakes were enormous, and yet he pulled it out, I think, brilliantly. Whenever we think about sources for a book like this, and anytime you're talking about writing about intelligence or writing about uh, secret operations, sourcing for historical nonfiction can be very difficult, uh, particularly in this case where one of the players is China. How did you go about gathering the, the sufficient sources for writing a book of this length? Sourcing is, is definitely a, a difficult issue. Um, there are parts of the CIA operations in Tibet that we'll talk about later, which are still kind of a mystery to me. Uh, you don't know how much money is expended, for example, that kind of figure. You'll never find that figure anywhere. But you can find out a lot about all of these things. First of all, the, the historical record on John F. Kennedy is enormous. Go to any library, go to any museum, and, and look for Kennedy, and you'll see there are more books about John F. Kennedy than almost any other president. Lincoln, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, and Washington probably have more. But Kennedy's up there in the top five. There are more books about Kennedy, parts of Kennedy's life that I'm sure Jack Kennedy ever wanted anybody to write about in, in, in the future. There are also, of course, the declassified documents, the State Department's records, uh, which come out periodically. There's a voluminous amount of material there. There are several diaries that were particularly useful. Uh, and the one that is most useful is the diary prepared by our ambassador to India in the 1960s, John Kenneth Galbraith. Now, John Kenneth Galbraith uh, subsequently wrote a memoir, but he also published his diary. And diaries are a goldmine for historians because what you write in the diary at the end of the day is what you actually thought that day. It's not what you thought 20 years later you wanted people to think. It's what you actually thought that day. And John Kenneth Galbraith was a gifted diary writer. He not only recorded the facts of the day, but he reported his opinions of everyone. He had a very high opinion of himself, and no one else achieved that stature in his diary. And we get some fascinating insights. And then there was a, a, a very important find for me. Um, Historians had long known that Nehru and Kennedy sent letters to each other during the crisis. And it was particularly known that on the 19th of November, at the height of the crisis, Nehru had written Kennedy two letters. But those letters were never declassified until, I think, 2012, when the John F. Kennedy Presidential Library in Boston declassified them completely, put out the entire letters. And those letters tell us about the peak of this crisis and the extraordinary move that Nehru did when he asked the United States to essentially join the war and become part of the war against China. Well, I think one thing you point out very, it's very interesting in the book is the amount of Indian sources. Uh, they lose the war. Sorry to give away the end of the book. Uh, but in doing so, there's a lot of introspection, a lot of right. soul-searching about how they, they lost so badly. And so there's a lot written from the Indian side about this conflict and, and everything that surrounded it as well. That's right. The, not only did the Indians lose, but there was a lot of mudslinging afterwards about who was responsible for losing. Now, of course, 
you have to take all of that with a grain of salt because when people are in the business of, of trying to defend their record and tarnish someone else's, they're likely to make a fair amount up. But there's a lot of information there. One of the most interesting things is that uh, Nehru's intelligence advisor um, wrote his account of his years as the, as the uh, master spy of Indian intelligence. Uh, and there's, in that book, he reveals some of the intelligence that was provided by his organization to Nehru in the weeks leading up to the war and then during the war itself. So you actually have some insights into Indian intelligence as well as insights that you can get from Americans writing about American intelligence. The big gap, of course, is China. Uh, and that's, that's a gap that I don't think we're going to see resolved for some time to come. The Chinese have written their accounts of the war, and I've was able to look at all of that. They're, of course, a, still a communist country. And this is far, their accounts are far from an objective recording of what happened. Right. They're part of Chinese official propaganda. And for anyone that thinks that this is just a book based on history from four or five decades ago, doesn't perhaps realize how much a, uh, a powder keg this region still is today. I mean, a, a lot of news is rightfully so about terrorism or about China and the South China Sea or about Russia and Ukraine or now about North Korean potential hydrogen weapons. But this is a mess, this area of the world. I mean, there are a lot of analysts today who, who predict this is where World War III is going to break out when it right. does. This, this, this area where you have this triangular arms race still today, where in your book you lay out the fact that the number one, two, and three buyers of weapons in the world are China, India, and Pakistan. Not right. that order, but those, those are the three real major players in this game. Well, this crisis in 1962 uh, was, in one respect, uh, an uh, argument over land, borders. Uh, the border between China and India was set in the 19th century arbitrarily by the British Empire. The Chinese never accepted it. They still don't accept it today. The longest disputed border in the world is the border between China and India. That border controversy and the war that they fought in 1962 over it has sparked probably the biggest arms race that the world has today. Uh, China, of course, was first to get nuclear weapons in uh, 1964. India got a nuclear weapon in 1974, called it a peaceful nuclear explosion, but there's no difference between a peaceful nuclear explosion and a warlike nuclear explosion. It's just good uh, PR. And of course, in 1999, both India and Pakistan tested nuclear weapons multiple times. They're now each trying to outstrip each other. So this conflict, in many ways, is still with us today, and it is the driving force behind the geopolitics, really, of, of Asia. And that's an issue that it concerns all of us. And I think one of the greatest historical truisms might be, don't let British people draw lines on maps. <laughs> they haven't done a particularly good job about anywhere they've done it. Uh, so the book has lots of moving parts, and, so, and I want to kind of start deconstructing it a little bit. Uh, we want people still to read it, so we're not going to go too right. far into it. But just kind of the different facets of this multifaceted story. Uh, one of them is the American intelligence perspective. Uh, we go into this crisis with some heavy baggage, the baggage from the Korean War. Can you talk a little bit about how the Korean War itself set us up for the way we viewed this conflict in 1962? Absolutely. The Korean War was a surprise to the American intelligence community when North Korea invaded South Korea. It was an even bigger surprise when the Chinese came in on the side of the North Koreans. The American intelligence community dismissed all the indications that China was sending literally hundreds of thousands of troops across the Yalu River in order to set a trap for American and allied forces moving into North Korea. A big part of that mistake had to do with the idiosyncrasy of the American intelligence community in East Asia in the 1950s. It was really wholly run subsidiary of the commander-in-chief, Douglas MacArthur. And Douglas MacArthur didn't like news that he didn't agree with, and the intelligence community learned that over time, and they gave him the news that he wanted to hear. Well, it turned out that turned out to be the biggest debacle in American military history in the 20th century. As a consequence of that, in the years after the war, 
the Central Intelligence Agency and other parts of the American intelligence community, but particularly the CIA, were under enormous pressure to try to find out what's going on inside communist China. That's a very, very hard target. This is a communist system closed to the outside world, a very fanatical system. One of the places you could find information, of course, was the resistance to communist rule. And one of the largest sources of resistance to communist rule in the 1950s was in Tibet. So the Eisenhower administration began a policy of covertly supplying arms to the Tibetan resistance against the Chinese. Now you have to think, how are you going to get arms into Tibet? Uh, it's not an easy not an easy challenge. The obvious answer would be if India would let you do that, but India was neutral in the Cold War and wasn't interested in supporting uh, adventures in uh, Tibet. Pakistan, on the other hand, was our ally in the 1950s. In fact, it had two treaty alliances with the United States. And Pakistan was very willing to help us. It actually established their bona fides as an American trusted ally, without them having to come out in the open. They could do all of this behind the scenes. So the CIA was supplying arms to Tibetan rebels in Tibet from a secret air base in what was then East Pakistan, what is now Bangladesh. Just to complete the picture one step further, where are you going to train these people? Well, the logical solution, Colorado. Why? Because Colorado is as close to the Himalayas as any place you could find in the 48 states of the United States back in the 1950s. Remember, Alaska was not yet a state. So the CIA was training rebels in Colorado, sending them clandestinely to East Pakistan, and then parachuting them and supplies into Tibet. It was a remarkable operation. Uh, Some would say, you know, the chances of success in terms of defeating the Red Chinese were slim to nil, but that really wasn't the main point. The point was to collect intelligence on what was going on inside communist China. And anyone who might be living today and not understanding the history of uh, this time period sees India as the world's most populous democracy. Pakistan is an ally of the United States today, but an ally of the United States today, the ISI, good one day, bad the next, and say, well, why in the world wouldn't the United States just side with India in this case. And you already kind of alluded to the fact that they were a non-aligned. Nehru was really kind of the head of the non-aligned movement. But there's a lot more going on here. Pakistan mattered for several other re- reasons, one of which, of course, is it's where we launched our U-2s from. That's right. You talk a little bit about why Pakistan mattered a lot to the American foreign policy, especially against the Soviet Union and against China uh, in the 1950s and 60s. Pakistan was an absolutely critical base for American intelligence operations. One, for I already mentioned, is the operation uh, from East Pakistan into Tibet. But from West Pakistan, what today is Pakistan, the American intelligence community had several other very, very important bases, the most famous of which was we were flying U-2 missions out of, out of Pakistan. In the 1950s and, and into the 1960s, Looking inside the Soviet Union was extremely difficult to do. It was also a closed society. It was a fanatic communist society, had extremely good counterintelligence capabilities. And we didn't have satellite imagery. What we had was the U-2. But to get a U-2 over the Soviet Union, you had to fly from someplace nearby. And Pakistan was a perfect place to do that from. And again, the Pakistani government wanting American assistance, wanting America to provide weapons at discounted rates, if not for free, wanting American economic assistance, wanting American diplomatic support, was quite willing to give us access to bases and to cooperate with us in clandestine missions, particularly as they thought that as a kind of another life insurance policy if things with India went bad again in the future. Remember, India and Pakistan are born together in the partition that accompanies independence in 1947, and they also went to war then. So the war between India and Pakistan, the the tensions that continue today, date back to 1947. So Pakistan was playing a very clever game, if you want to put it, of trying to use its clandestine relationship to supplement its overt relationship with the United States. Well, you mentioned in the book, they do join these two alliances. They join CENTO, the Central Asian Treaty Organization, and CETO, 
the Southeast Asian Treaty Organization. Some people might know CETO because it's the big Vietnam War right. organization. But you even say they don't do it to fight the Soviets or the communists. Right. They do it because of India. Pakistan has a long history of listening to what Americans want to hear, telling them what they want to hear, and then doing what it already wanted to do on its own. They're not unique in that regard. Most countries do something like that. But Pakistan it's, is a particularly egregious case. When Kennedy came into office, he had a different view. Uh, he, he thought that the Eisenhower administration had a too black and white view of the Cold War, that we were putting everyone into the category of with us or against us, not realizing that there was a very large middle of the road particularly newly independent countries that didn't want to be on any side, and India was the biggest one of those. He'd actually been making this case for some time, and as he was a senator getting ready in the late 1950s to run for office, he gave a very important speech in which he said, as early as 1958, that the biggest conflict in the world in the 1950s was the conflict between China and India, between a democracy and a communist system, and that the United States had a vital interest in ensuring that India won that contest. That was a pretty remarkable thing to be saying in the 1950s. So you can imagine when he's elected in 1960, the concerns and the fears in Pakistan, uh-oh, the gravy train is about to come to an end. This guy's going to tilt towards India, which, in fact, he intended to do. Well, and for anyone not familiar with what the root of the tension is, it really comes down to Kashmir in many cases. And that, you know, this is something that three wars have now been fought over, including, I believe, the only war between two nuclear powers in history, in the 1999 war, basically the highest war ever fought up in the Himalayas. Uh, And that is a key component also to this conflict because China also occupies part of Kashmir. Talk a little bit about that region. Well, Kashmir was a princely state in the British Indian Empire, meaning that the British didn't rule it directly. A local Maharaja ruled it. Now, the anomaly of the princely state of Kashmir in the British Empire was that it had a Muslim majority and a Hindu Maharaja. So when the moment of partition comes in 1947, there is enormous pressure for it to be made part of Pakistan. And Pakistanis felt it's majority Muslim, it should become part of our country. But the Maharaja had a different view. First of all, he hoped to be independent. That was his number one goal. When he realized that wasn't an option, he decided he wanted to be part of India. And India wanted Kashmir as well. Nehru in particular wanted Kashmir because his family roots were in Kashmir. But the conflict is, as you noted, also a trilateral conflict. Not only are India and Pakistan claimants to part of what used to be the princely state. China claims a significant part of it today. And so today, Kashmir, the old princely state, is divided three ways. The biggest part of it is run by the Indians, part that has the most natural resources, most population. Another part is run by the Pakistanis. And a third part, place where a lot of the fighting in 1962 took place, is controlled by the Chinese today. That part is a a complete desert. Nobody lives there. It's a desert at the top of the world. It's one of the most inaccessible places in the world. But it has a highway that connects Tibet with China's other western province, Xinjiang, which is strategically vital to Chinese communist control over the western part of the country. Let's talk about the fighting in 1962, because I think this is the way you portray it in the book, this is almost the what not to do when you're a leader of a country and you're trying to consume intelligence. Uh, they had no business taking on the Chinese. Uh, Nehru was told his forces, well, maybe he wasn't. Let me ask you that question. Because there was this bureaucracy that maybe filtered a lot of the stuff that got to Nehru. But the commander on the ground saw that he was outnumbered 5 to 1, that his soldiers were still using Lee Enfield rifles from the 19th century versus the Chinese or state-of-the-art weapons. How did that information not get up to Nehru, or did Nehru ignore it? What is the situation there? Why did they get themselves in this predicament? They got themselves in this predicament for, for I would say, two reasons. One, domestic politics. Um, India is a democracy, a vibrant democracy with a very vibrant free press. 
And any attempt at compromise with China was perceived in the Indian democratic system as selling out India's interests. So Nehru was under tremendous domestic pressure to look tough and to be aggressive and to stand up to the Chinese. Remember, the press is filled with stories at this time about Chinese atrocities in Tibet. So there's a background here of, of real ugliness and what's going on. So the Indian press is pushing him to be tough, to be forward. He adopts a forward policy. His intelligence apparatus and his military are telling him at the same time, we can't support this. We're, we're, we're way too far out. If the Chinese come, we're going to be overrun. But as that message filtered up through the Indian national security bureaucracy, it was sugar-coated. Nobody wants to tell the boss bad news. Nobody wants to tell the founder of the country, the man who is, who is literally India, that he's making a big mistake. And I don't think that he ever got, uh, before the war, an unvarnished version of what was likely to happen, even though his military commanders on the, on the scene knew how poorly prepared they were for war. You also point out that he was told two things from his intelligence. One is that there were indications that the Chinese were trying to rile up Indian communists. And two is that China and Pakistan may have been right. working together potentially. Were these things that kind of made it almost absolutely necessary for him to at least engage in the forward policy, as you mentioned before? I think the... Uh, the Pakistani position was, was very important in all of this. China and Pakistan had no relationship before 1962. Uh, as part of being on our side in the Cold War, they had to regard China as part of the enemy. But they were already beginning to look to the future and say, you know, the Americans don't look that reliable. Who's got it in for the Chinese? Who's got it in for the Indians? It's obviously the Chinese. And the Pakistanis and the Chinese are starting to signal each other. The Indians picked this up. And the Indian intelligence chief told Nehru, we think there is some kind of secret dialogue going on between the Chinese and the Pakistanis. And that gets to one of the nightmares of the war that Kennedy really had to deal with. What if, as China is inviting, invading India from the north... Pakistan decides to join the war and opens a second front. And given that the Indians were already under the gun with the Chinese, a second front could have been disaster for the, for the Indians. Well, and diplomatically, Pakistan had an ace card. They could say, we'll stay out of the war, we'll even help you, but we want Kashmir. Right. Right from the beginning of the war, the, the dictator of Pakistan, President Field Marshal Ayub Khan began sending letters to Kennedy saying, um, we, need, we should be compensated. There should be some compensation for Pakistan saying on the sidelines. Compensation was exactly what you said. Compensation was a code word for give us Kashmir. Now Kennedy and Ambassador Galbraith right from the beginning rejected that. That's blackmail. We're not going to give, give in to blackmail. We may be willing to study the issue of Kashmir, but not under the gun of a war between China and India. And Kennedy had to send Ayub Khan increasingly tough messages saying, stay out. If you join the war, we'll see you as part of the hostile enemy forces. We will treat you like you are an ally of the communists. And I think that dissuaded Ayub Khan at the end from joining the war. One of the things I found extremely interesting about this book was the extraordinary impact this war had, right? It's a war that many of us don't know a whole lot about. I mean, your book is really one of the first ones to focus in on it, but it has long-lasting impact. I mean, we talked a little bit about some of it, but everything from India's decision to develop nuclear weapons was a key here. Everything from India basically abandoning the non-aligned uh, and coming more to the United States. Uh, I looked online. I mean, you talk about in the book that the view of the United States uh, in the 1950s by Indians was in the single digits, right? The approval right. rating was like 7%. And today, Pew just put out a poll that over 70% of Indians are pro-America. I look at the United States as favorably. And this war, and the way we reacted to this war is really the, the reason for all of this. You talk a little bit about how you know, the India-Pakistan-American right. relationship uh, is a direct result of October 1962. Well, Indians before 1962, saw America as, a, as either a dupe of Pakistan or an ally of Pakistan. Saw America as in bed with their existential enemy. 
1962, they also feared that the United States wouldn't do anything about China. Instead, Kennedy came to their, to their rescue. Within days of the start of the war, Kennedy agreed to an airlift of American supplies to the Indian Army. And within a week or so of the beginning of the war, a massive airlift of American equipment was flying from bases in Europe and in East Asia, delivering equipment to the Indians, mostly in the city of Kolkata. And then smaller American aircraft, C-130s, were actually flying the equipment right up to the battlefield to give it to the Indians and put it in their hands. Now, of course, it's very dangerous in a war to be receiving assistance that you've never received before. You've had no training on this equipment. You've never seen this equipment before. But it made a big difference. And it made an even bigger difference after the war. Because only three years later, Pakistan does do what it thought about doing in 1962. And it actually invades India as well. So Kennedy's airlift was crucial to the Indians' ability to hold the Chinese as well as they did. In the end, it wasn't very well, but also to their self-confidence that the United States was behind India at this crucial moment in its life. And then, as I alluded to earlier, when Nehru sends this letter asking for America to intervene, he asks for the equivalent of 350 combat aircraft to be deployed from the United States Air Force to India to join the air war against the Chinese. That would have put the United States directly at war with communist China in 1962. Remember, we just finished a war with China in 1953 and Korea. This would have been an enormous decision by the president. Fortunately, the Chinese, for reasons that I can surmise, but we don't know for sure, unilaterally stopped the war. And Kennedy never had to answer that request from Nehru for 350 combat aircraft. But it's illuminating to know that in 1963, a year after the war, the United States Air Force practiced exactly what Nehru had asked for in 1962 and sent squadrons of American aircraft along with the Royal Air Force, the Royal Canadian Air Force, and the Royal Australian Air Force to India to practice what Nehru had asked for in 1962. And your book alludes to this, well, not to, straight up says, straight alludes is the wrong word, that, that really JFK is the hero here, where his decision to support Nehru and his serious thinking about joining the war was really the deterrent that keeps China from pushing their gains and keeps Pakistan out of the war. And that you can think about that for India's sake. Sure, it, it made India a safer place. But that's what kept the Americans out of the war as well, too. It was Kennedy's strong action that... Right actually keeps us from going and fighting China right. in a real shooting war. Kennedy sent a very firm deterrent message. Part of that was publicly we sided with the Indians. We said their definition of the border is the right definition of the border. In fact, the United States' position today, 50-some years later, still sides with India on where the border is. And secondly, as I said, he sent an airlift, a visible manifestation of American support. And I think that that did deter the, the Chinese from going any further. The Chinese had largely accomplished their military objective. They'd humiliated the Indians. But they could have gone much further. And in the darkest moments of November 1962, the Indians thought that they were actually going to have their country carved apart by communist China, and part would be annexed by the communists, and part would be given to Pakistan, Kashmir, and maybe more. We now know, in retrospect, that that wasn't what was going to happen, but that's bad history to apply what you know in retrospect. You have to think of where were these people at the time, and Kennedy's decision to send troops, to send an airlift, uh, was really a, a, a very important one. And here again, let me go back to where we started. This is a guy who's dealing with the Cuban Missile Crisis. If he gets the Cuban Missile Crisis wrong, we wouldn't be here today. We wouldn't be here. It would have been nuclear Armageddon. He's face-to-face, eyeball-to-eyeball with Khrushchev and Castro in Cuba. And at the same time, he's dealing with another huge crisis on the other side of the globe involving the other big communist power. This is multitasking. 
at a level of multitasking that is almost impossible to envision. And I think it really tells us a lot about how fine a statesman and national security leader Kennedy had become by 1962. I think it was a learning experience for him. So if you think of the Cuban Missile Crisis as John F. Kennedy's finest hour, I would submit to you if you recognize that that was only part of what he was dealing with, it's even his finest hour finer than ever before. <laughs> so we're, we're, going to, we're about to open it up to questions from the audience. Before we do that, I want to focus on one last area. Um, this is the spy museum, so I really want to hunker down a little bit on the CIA operation in Tibet. Uh, incredibly successful operation from what you said for collecting intelligence. You talk about one instance where they capture Chinese documents that were so so uh, so juicy they had to bring in teams from Stanford University to do translation. Right. Um, but anytime you talk, when you, any, sorry, anytime you talk about covert action, you always have to be thinking about the blowback. You have to be thinking about unintended consequences. Uh, and you you do show in the book that perhaps. This operation in Tibet was the root cause for Mao's invasion of India. Because, ironically, even though the Indians were not involved at all, as you mentioned, it was Pakistan. Mao blames the Indians or thinks the Indians are in bed with the CIA in this, you know, interfering in internal Chinese politics. Can you talk a little bit about that pushback? Sure. Because I really think it, it it's maybe fundamental to even the, the whole story. Right. Just to, one more word of background about it. This, it was the CIA that assisted the Dalai Lama, the spiritual head of Tibet, same Dalai Lama who's a global figure today, in exfiltrating out of Tibet in the 1950s. It was a CIA-trained officer, Tibetan, who helped him get out. And his party had CIA com communication systems, so they were able to tell the United States, that they were leaving Tibet and when they had arrived inside India. Alan Dulles, then the director of Central Intelligence, had one of his best days as DCI when he was able to tell Eisenhower, we have successfully exfiltrated the Dalai Lama out of China. But from the Chinese perspective, what they see is airplanes flying over Indian territory, dropping supplies to the Tibetan rebels. They don't know where those planes are taking off from. They don't have radar systems in those days that would be sophisticated enough. It looks like they're coming from India. Added to all of other Chinese concerns about India, the forward policy, which I mentioned earlier, the rival claims to the territory, what it looks like from the Chinese perspective is the Americans and the Indians are ganging up, trying to support the Tibetan resistance, trying to prevent China from acquiring space that China felt is historically part of the Chinese state. And I think if we could ever get into the archives of the uh, Mao Zedong, uh, we would discover that very much on his mind in pursuing this war was the sense that the CIA and the Indians were colluding against him. The great irony, of course, is when the war is over, one of the things the CIA and the Indians now agree on is, let's both support the Tibetan rebels. India's decision in the past to hold back no longer makes any mistake. We're at war with, we're at war with China now. We have nothing to lose and everything to gain by helping the Americans uh, support the Tibetans. So an operation that was probably on a downward decline as the war approached suddenly zoomed up in the other direction, and now the Indians were the enthusiastic supporters of it. In fact, so enthusiastic that some of the things they wanted to do, the CIA thought, mm, that's probably a little too risky. All of it peters out, though, as the 1960s goes on. After all, the notion that Tibetans could actually defeat the largest army in the world was always a long shot. But even in the 19s, later in the 1960s, the Tibetans were still providing important intelligence for the United States and the bases that we were supplying them from, which switched from Pakistan in 1962 to India in 1963, were also bases where we flew U-2 missions out of. We not only flew U-2 missions out of Pakistan before 1962, and in fact for some years afterwards, we now started flying U-2 missions out of India with Nehru's cooperation. 
And it was those U-2 missions that discovered preparations for the first Chinese nuclear test. And one of the CIA's big coups in 1964 with new President Lyndon Johnson was being able to tell him more than two months before the Chinese test, we know there's going to be a Chinese test, we know where it's going to take place, and we can give you the countdown as to when that test is going to take place because we're overflying it from a base in India. And the, and the wonderful irony, as you mentioned, is China's new best friend, Pakistan, was the one actually helping us That's right. to put people into Tibet and to try to fight against their, their rule. Um, so let's, let's open it up to questions. Uh, wait for the microphone. Uh, both Lucy and, Sh- and Shauna here have a microphone, so we will... Uh... Uh, in his book on this subject, Neville Maxwell emphasizes uh, that Nehru wanted to help out his... Uh, crony uh, uh, named Krishna Menon, who was uh, defense minister and uh, probably the best hated man in India. Would you comment on uh, this this emphasis that Maxwell places in his book? Right. Well, Krishna was the the defense minister of India. Um, He was a a larger-than-life personality. Uh, And he was about as anti-American as any Indian politician of the day. Um, And he was also an enthusiastic supporter of the forward policy. Uh, The United States was less than uh, uh, secret about its glee when Krishna is cashiered at the beginning of the war, because after all, he's the commander of the Indian defense system, and somebody had to be thrown over the side by Nehru when they began losing the war, and he ends up throwing Neville Maxwell's book is a great book. Uh, He he was really one of the first people to write a thorough book about the India-China war uh, in the 1970s. And he wanted to go against conventional wisdom. Uh, And conventional wisdom was the Indians were the good guys and the Chinese were the bad guys. His book tries to turn the page on that and say, no, in fact, the Indians were the provocateurs, and the Chinese were only trying to defend themselves. This turned out to be a very useful line for a book in the mid-1970s and for a certain American president, Richard Nixon, who wanted to justify his rapprochement with China and argue, no, the Chinese aren't crazy fanatics. They're understandable people. So Maxwell had the dream that any author has, Publish your book just at the right time when everyone's suddenly interested in a new look at China. And you'll have people like Henry Kissinger and Chu Enlai, the Chinese foreign minister, all endorsing your book and saying it's it's absolutely right. It's very, very good for book sales. I think he overdoes it. I think you know, in his effort to be a revisionist, like most revisionist historians, he goes a little bit too far. I think that there's India certainly did a lot of stupid things in provoking the Chinese. But at the end of the day, it was the Chinese who started the war. And it was the Chinese who uh, actually initiated military operations. So, Shauna, we'll go here, and then we'll go back. Laura has somebody. Uh, wasn't the line in dispute called the McMahon line? And also, I think uh, Edgar Snow, in his book, The Other Side of the River, and he was and had probably to be delicate about it, had as good a relationship with uh, Mao and Zhou Enlai as any American of his day, that I think the claim is that China's aims in the war were limited from the start, and they didn't want a general war with India, but just to um, occupy that, that border that they felt was appropriate, and having achieved their goal, they were happy to end the conflict. Uh, I'm, just, I'm not sure if this is, I want your reaction to that. Sure. Um, all of that is probably true, that China's objectives from the, bin- from the beginning were limited and were achieved by the humiliation of uh, India and particularly of Nehru. Uh, Mao and Nehru uh, both saw themselves as the greatest Asian of the 20th century. Uh, and there wasn't enough space in the... Uh, in the world, even in Asia, uh, for these two great figures to be there. Uh, And Nehru, in the end, I think, turns out to be uh, 
something of a sap. He he thought that, that Mao really was with him in a new Asian century. Uh, and part of the story here is how broken a man Nehru is when he finds out that, that Mao's not on his side at all and is now, uh, from Nehru's standpoint, stabbed him in the back. Um, but the point I want to stress is this. In October and November 1962, neither Nehru nor Kennedy knew what China's objective was. Now, they could go to their experts, and most of their experts said, probably limited, but we're not sure. Uh, They could also say to themselves, well, if they have no opposition, might their ambition grow? In other words, from Kennedy's standpoint, Nehru's standpoint, in critical moments of this crisis, you could have your estimate of how far the Chinese are going to go, but you had to start thinking about the alternative. What if they don't stop? And as the Indians got more and more desperate in November 1962, they began envisioning the Chinese taking all of northeast India, maybe even including the city of Calcutta, which would have been a devastating blow uh, to India. Now, John Kenneth Galbraith, in his, his diary that I mentioned before earlier, says exactly this. He says, I was pretty sure on 19 November that China's objectives were limited, but I was beginning to have second thoughts that maybe I was wrong. Back over there. The uh, <clears throat> perception by the Chinese that uh, it was... Uh, India and the United States that were uh, supplying the Tibetans, but they were the flights were coming from Bangladesh. Was there fly, flyover uh, permission given by India to allow that? Not at all. This was a this was a covert covert operation. Um, how much the Indians knew about what we were doing is an interesting question. Uh, the Indians had. The Tibetan resistance movement, they were the home for the political side of the Tibetan resistance movement. The Dalai Lama lived in India. They must have had a lot of people inside the Tibetan movement who were telling them what was going on. But I think that the Indian intelligence philosophy was, uh, if nobody asks us about it, uh, we don't have to comment on it. Uh, we will, you know, uh, we know what's going on but we're not going to say anything about it. And we're certainly not going to say anything to anybody on the outside other than we're not involved in the, in, in the military uh, hostilities inside Tibet. Well, what else would they say? I mean, the whole essence of a clandestine covert operation is that you say you're not involved and you try to make it look like you have nothing to do with it. I don't think the Indians at the time... Uh, felt that associating or disassociating themselves from the CIA operation would do them any credit with the Chinese. A question. And then back there. And then Peter. Oh. No, you're good. Okay. Um, I think I had kind of a different upbringing because I'd always heard about the covert action in Tibet and my family, but. Um, have you come across anything or do you have any thoughts as to why it's one of the lesser known uh, covert actions that happened during the Cold War, why we don't talk about it more in history and when we're looking at policy? It's a good question because actually there's a lot written about the Tibetan covert operation. Uh, The uh, CIA officer who was basically in charge of it uh, wrote a book published by Harvard, uh, which I, I, I... frankly astounds me how he ever got it through the publication review process at the CIA. I mean, obviously, they wanted this book to come out and tell this story because it goes into incredible detail, not just about what we did, but about the personalities within the CIA and which positions they were on, which normally uh, you, you don't get that kind of access. And there have been several other books uh, since then that, that provide a, a great deal of very, very good information about what was going on. I think that there's a couple of reasons why it doesn't get much attention. One, it kind of fizzled out. So it never, there was never a bang to this story. Uh, it's not like the Bay of Pigs where there's a disastrous bang. Um, 
Secondly, I think that uh, the association of the CIA with the Tibetans and particularly the Dalai Lama is probably not the most politically smart thing the Dalai Lama wants these days. Uh, So they're not encouraging this part of their story uh, to be front page. Peter, a question? Terrific program, Bruce. I can see why the government still calls on you for advice. Um, And my question concerns the role of Galbraith. He was not known as a fan of CIA uh, and, and regarded the whole Tibetan enterprise I think, uh, disdainfully. Um, My question is, how significant was he as a key advisor taking Kennedy through this period? Galbraith was was critical. If if Kennedy is is the the big star, Galbraith is definitely the second star almost as big. There's one other star I want to mention, and I'll come back to in a minute, though, and that's the First Lady. Uh, because we should spend a, a moment on her. But Galbraith, uh, born in Canada, uh, educated at the Ontario Agriculture School, uh, had gone on to become a brilliant professor of economics and advisor to Kennedy in the 1950s, a, an enthusiast for Nehru and India. And he asked for this job, and Kennedy gave it to him. Um, Galbraith had a very, very high opinion of himself uh, and didn't hide it at all. Uh, But he was a very level-headed person. Uh, And he thought that the CIA operation in Tibet was way too risky for very little payback. Um, And as you alluded to, he also had a, a generally negative impression of covert operations. I wouldn't say the CIA, but of covert operations. He, he thought they were far too risky. And he made that very clear to Kennedy right from the beginning. Uh, he had, as, as usual, you know, very um, uh, uh, cryptic but insightful remarks. He called this one of the most unsanitary and unhygienic operations ever carried out by an intelligence organization implying that the Tibetans were not clean enough to be given American intelligence support. Kind of dubious argument. Um, What's interesting is Kennedy didn't listen to him. Kennedy heard his advice, but he sided with the CIA, continued the operation. And then, of course, in 1962, after the war, when India wants to be our partner in the covert operation, Galbraith changed his mind. And I wouldn't say he became an enthusiastic supporter, but once the Indians were in the room, he was much more comfortable with the operation. His advice to the president throughout all of this was clear and very, very good. He maintained a back channel directly to the president. He didn't rely on going through State Department channels. Uh, He said operating through the State Department was like fornicating through a mattress, another (laughs) one of his juicy quotes. Um, and Kennedy listened to him. It's, I think, a rare example of where an American ambassador in the field is not only superbly qualified for the job, but also has the president's ear, and the president really is listening to him. And I think that that paid off in October and November 1962. But if I could, let me just say one word about the First Lady. Um, Jacqueline Kennedy uh, not only was the hostess for state visits by both Nehru and Ayub Khan and went out of her way to think of creative ways to host these visits, uh, she also, in the spring of 1962, went to India and Pakistan. And her trip to India and Pakistan in the spring of 1962 is the first foreign travel by an American first lady traveling without the president in the televised era. And she was a smashing success. Uh, Enormous crowds came out for her in New Delhi, in uh, Mumbai, Bombay, and also in Karachi and in uh, other Pakistani cities. And the picture of her at the Taj Mahal is probably one of the iconic pictures of the Taj Mahal, only Probably Princess Diana's picture is now more famous than, than, than the First Lady's. 
Her trip did an enormous amount to build goodwill between India and the United States and also between Pakistan and the United States and also to reinforce the connection that the president had with the two leaders. They now actually hosted his wife in their countries. Last thing I would say on this, uh, Nehru, um, I would say, was smitten by the first lady. Uh, for the rest of his life, he had a photograph of her on his bedstand. Now, that's you know a little unusual. I, I don't want to dwell on it too much, uh, but it's another example of how the first lady in this case played a role that I think is is quite unusual in American diplomacy. Let me let me just add, ask you one thing. Talk about Galbraith. You, you one thing I found really interesting in the book is he is essentially alone by himself for the majority of the Indian crisis, providing Kennedy with information. Whereas you have XCOM and the military and the CIA and, and just when Cuban Missile Crisis is, is 50, now maybe it's too many, maybe there's only been a couple because he ignores right. most of the bad advice there, but it's he's by himself. He's really the only point person on the ground providing this information about this crisis that could have turned into a full war. And you know, I think that you do a good job in the book of, of showing uh, perhaps he is the hero versus Kennedy in this case. I mean, Kennedy you know, certainly is the ultimate decision maker in this case, but almost without him, right. it could have gone very, very badly. Well, once the Cuban Missile Crisis begins, it consumes all the oxygen in Washington. And as I said, this is the future of mankind is at stake here, not just the future of the United States. In fact, we now know it was even more dangerous than they thought it was at the time. At the time, uh, the CIA estimate was there's five to 6,000 Soviet soldiers on Cuba. There turned out to be 50,000 Soviet soldiers in Cuba. And Kennedy, faced with this crisis, wanted as inclusive a decision-making body as, part, as possible. So he brought in all the relevant cabinet members. He brought in the director of central intelligence. He brought in his brother, uh, Bobby, who plays a crucial role. But what he discovered, I think, is that rather than getting uh, a lot of different points of advice, he got a chorus of everyone saying, let's bomb the Russians. Really, Adley Stevenson is the only person in the room who says, that's kind of crazy. You know, What are you going to do the day after? And his brother. I think when he now starts thinking about the India crisis, he's less inclined to bring all these people in because he's heard their advice and it didn't turn out to be particularly helpful. And he's getting advice from Galbraith, the person he really admires and trusts. For a certain period of the crisis, Galbraith is all alone. He's, you know, nobody's sending him instructions. He's sending a letter or two to Kennedy every day, keeping him informed and basically making up policy on his own. Now, in the book, he clearly does not lament this. <laughs> he clearly says, this is great, you know, I'm in charge, you know. He says it a little bit more delicately than that, but he basically says, thank God, because he had a very, very poor opinion of the State Department. He didn't like Dean Rusk. He didn't like yeah. Secretary of State Dean Rusk at all, and, and that comes through in his diary. And he didn't trust a lot of his other ambassadors. Uh, he, he knew that, the, for example, the government in Taiwan uh, which was an American ally, uh, which was the, what we recognized as China, nationalist China in those days, sided with the communists on what the border should be, huh. not with the Indians. Uh, and he overrode their opinion, just ignored their opinion completely and came out publicly on the Indian side. Galbraith's, uh, yes, his advice was crucial, but as you rightly said, Kennedy is the ultimate decision maker. One other interesting thing about Galbraith is as the crisis goes on, he's no longer just the American ambassador to Nehru. He becomes an advisor to Nehru. He earns Nehru's trust. And he is beginning and really flourishes in this role, telling Nehru the things that no Indian is going to tell Nehru, that, you know, if you, you've got to reach out to Ayub Khan, for example. You can't just depend upon your foreign ministry to deal with the Pakistanis. You, Mr. Prime Minister, have to reach out to your counterpart and make clear where you stand on these things. And Nehru, in the end, listened very much to Galbraith's opinion. We were very, very fortunate 
1962, not just to have JFK as president, but to have Ken Galbraith as the American ambassador to India. Well, please join me in thanking Bruce Rydell for taking the time to come talk to you. Thank you for listening to SpyCast. Remember, every Tuesday we will post a new podcast available from both spymuseum.org and iTunes. If you have any questions or comments about SpyCast, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org or leave a comment or review on our iTunes page. You can also follow us on Twitter at intlspycast. That's intlspycast. Talk to you next week.